Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Today's guest is no stranger to researching some of Mother Nature's most powerful storms. Dr. Kristen Rasmussen is an assistant professor at Colorado State University, and today we'll get an inside look at her team's recent trek to Argentina for the Relampago Field Campaign. We'll discuss what makes these storms so powerful and find out how the local weather services and communities respond to such extreme conditions. Plus, we'll discuss how severe storms may behave in a warming world. Could climate change be setting the environment up for more explosive storms? We'll unravel the details next on Weather Geeks. Uh, Dr. Rasmussen, thanks for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really interesting to talk to you. I know we talked to someone else uh, recently about the Relampago Field Campaign, but from a different perspective, really, I think it was Karen Kasiba and we were talking more about radar. I want to go in a completely different direction because we're entitling this podcast episode Where the Wild Storms Are. But before we get to that level of detail, I always like to start by asking my guests how you got interested in meteorology and did you always know that this was what you wanted to do? You know, I I, uh, I always knew that I wanted to be a meteorologist, um, particularly in sixth grade. I actually had the opportunity to see uh, a pretty rare tornado in Boulder, Colorado. Um, it was the last day of middle school and I looked out the window and I saw uh, a funnel cloud right right outside my middle school and that kind of solidified it for me. You know, and it's interesting because everyone seems to have that experience. Sixth grade was the magic year for me. I did a science project, can a sixth grader predict the weather and made weather instruments from things around the house. So uh, I I know from research that the American Meteorological Society has uh, typically middle school or those sort of fifth, sixth, seventh grade years are the years that many meteorologists uh, get involved. That sounds like that's your story as well. That's right. And that's one of the reasons we actually focus a lot on on outreach to middle school uh, students, because a lot of us had those experiences and it had had changed the way that our career path um, went after that point. Now, let me give you a little background on uh, Dr. Rasmussen. She has a bachelor's degree, a BA in music, and I want to talk a little bit more about that. She has a bachelor's, a BS degree in meteorology and mathematics, both from the University of Miami, and she did her master's and PhD in uh, uh, atmospheric sciences from the University of Washington. So she's uh, well-versed in meteorology and atmospheric sciences, but what's up with this BA degree in music? Yeah, so I'm also a jazz trumpet player, um, and I found that uh, the, kind of the creative side of me uh, required both my right and my left brain to be worked. Um, and so jazz trumpet was a way for me to really express my creativity. Um, and it also helped me uh, kind of clear my brain before I went off to science and math classes. And I do the same thing um, right now. That That's so interesting because I, I will admit as someone that has pretty much been in the science side, I have very little creative brain side, but it sounds like you have both of those because of meteorology and atmospheric sciences is a very quantitative physical science. Uh, so it sounds like you are really adept at tapping into both sides of your brain. That's right. I actually find that it's really important to have that balance. Um, I find when I don't play music, I, I feel unbalanced. And so it's a really important part of my life. And I'm continuing to play um, even even up to, to now. 
That that's really awesome, and I've I've found some very multi talented colleagues along the way. My colleague uh, John Knox at the University of Georgia uh, is also a musician and used to be in an '80s cover band. So shout out to John Knox out there. How many how many field campaigns are, have you participated in the Relampago, which stands for? Let me read that because it is an acronym, and in, in meteorology and in science, we tend to like acronyms. So you recently participated in Relampago, which stands for Remote Sensing of Electrification, Lightning, and Mesoscale Microscale Processes with Adaptive Ground Observations. And it was a field campaign held in Cordoba, Argentina. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we spoke to Karen Casiba about this in a previous podcast. So that's a mouthful. So I certainly see why it has an acronym. But what else have you participated in? Um, I participated in field campaigns almost all over the world. Um, during grad school, I was part of the Dynamo field campaign in the Maldives. Um, I participated in uh, snow uh, now casting as part of the Vancouver 2010 Olympics. Um, I've done, I did a research experience as an undergraduate um, on the RICO field campaign that was in the Caribbean. Um, so I think I counted and I've been at, at least on seven field campaigns um, and I'm not too far into my career, and I hope to continue that. Yeah, as that's we, as what I move forward. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. You're, you're relatively young in your career, and quite a bit of field campaign work already. For the listeners, this is Weather Geese, and we have a, a, an array of listeners to this podcast. And thank you all, by the way, for listening. Can you explain to the listeners before we get into the details of Relampico why field research and field campaigns are so important to the to the field of meteorology? Sure. Uh, so field campaigns are are a really important tool. Uh, for collecting very high resolution and very detailed information about the clouds or the weather that we're studying. Uh, we, we can form our ideas or our theories about what we think is happening, uh, but until we actually get into the field with detailed instruments that are, um, that are carefully put together uh, to, to answer the science questions that we have, a lot of times we can't answer those really important basic science questions uh, that really drive our research forward. Um, and so that this is one of the reasons that I am so passionate about doing field work uh, and will continue um, throughout my career. Yeah, I think it's always important because, as I mentioned earlier, meteorology and atmospheric sciences can be very theoretical. It's always actually shocking to some people that uh, express interest in studying our field and, and they discover how much physics and calculus and partial differential equations you have to take and what you see in dynamics and thermodynamics courses. But it's always uh, important to get out into the field and sort of see those equations in action. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I'm also passionate about bringing students into the field. Um, I realized that I wanted to be a research scientist uh, during my time in the RICO field campaign, um, seeing the observations collected and basically at firsthand and watching the weather go by. Um, that's what solidified my desire to become a career scientist. And so I try to bring my students and as many students as possible to the field to give them that same experience. We're talking with uh, Dr. Kristen Rasmussen at Colorado State University. She's an assistant professor at Colorado State University. Uh, she's uh, the early career award winner at the AMS Mesoscale Process Conference. Uh, she was an advanced study program postdoctoral fellow at the National Center for Atmospheric Research uh, and has numerous other honors as well, such as the Pete Wagner Memorial Award for Women in Atmospheric Sciences and a NASA Earth Science System Science Graduate Fellowship. So uh, she's one of the young stars in our field. As I look at her, her CV and some of the accolades, so it's really an honor to be talking with you today. I want to pivot now to Relampago. Uh, why'd you go down to Argentina to do this field campaign? That's a great question. Um, I'll start the story back when I began graduate school, actually, uh, around 2007. 
Um, Ed Zipser, who was a very, uh, very famous meteorologist in our field and has participated in probably more field campaigns than anybody I, I know, um, he published a paper in 2006 titled, Where are the Most Intense Thunderstorms on Earth? And this was a paper that was using data from the Tropical Rainfall Measuring Mission satellite. This was the first space-borne precipitation radar. And from data uh, from that satellite, it was found that Argentina actually has some of the deepest and most intense thunderstorms on Earth. And nobody knew that that was the case until that paper was published. And so um, basically my entire PhD career was spent looking at these storms using the uh, the TRIM radar data. And we found very remarkable um, characteristics of these storms. They are very, very intense, very long lasting and have a lot of damage, including hail, tornadoes and floods. And so uh, through building this research over time, uh, we decided that we needed to actually go down there and bring instruments to the field. Um, Argentina did not have a, a ground-based radar network like our NEXRAD radar network here in the United States until just about two years ago. And so uh, we needed to have those high resolution uh, and very uh, research quality uh, measurements down in the field uh, to understand the dynamics and the characteristics of these storms in, in more detail. And I want to use this opportunity to give a shout out to NASA because I don't think many people realize that uh, NASA, uh, yes, that NASA, the one that launches space shuttles and astronauts, actually has a very robust Earth Sciences program. And they use the vantage point of space to study various aspects of the third planet from the sun, Earth, which I would argue is the most important one to understand. And so the Tropical Rainfall Measuring Mission or TRIM mission that uh, you heard Dr. Rasmussen mention and its follow-on mission, the Global Precipitation Measurement Mission or GPM, which actually I happen to be the deputy project scientist for for many years when I was at NASA, uh, these satellites and these instruments allow us to see those thunderstorms and the severity of them in fairly remote places where you just heard Dr. Rasmussen say that we don't have ground-based radar systems until recently. So the, the vantage point of space is often very important because much of the Earth is actually not accessible for ground-based observations. It's either mostly ocean or it's mountainous terrain or other difficult terrain. So um, it, it sounds like you've done quite a bit of work or at least are very familiar with many of the Earth sciences satellites that NASA and, and even NOAA and others have up there. That's right. Yeah. And I, I would argue that the TRIM satellite has really revolutionized the way that we see clouds across the entire globe. Uh, we're able to look at the, the vertical and three-dimensional structures of clouds over oceans, over remote places. I've also studied floods in India and Pakistan. Those are places where we just don't have high-resolution radar information. And so the satellite has really changed the way we see clouds and storms across the world. Well, let's veer, let's veer off of this. This is weather geeks, and I like to have geek out sessions within the podcast. Let's geek out for a second. We're two sci uh, scientists that that know a lot about remote sensing of of, of weather. Uh, how? Let's talk about how a satellite, a, a, a trim or a GPM satellite, actually measures rain from space or thunderstorms from space. I mean, what is what is physically happening? How does it do it? Sure. So uh, the the primary instrument that I'm using is uh, is a radar. Um, so basically, the satellite flies over the surface of the of the Earth, and it uh, has a radar that scans, um, and it basically uh, sends out an electromagnetic pulse. It uh, reflects on uh, particles in the atmosphere, including precipitation particles, and those particles reflect some of that energy back up to the satellite, and we retrieve that energy, and we can actually tell you uh, what, what the three-dimensional structure of that uh, cloud is. Um, it's kind of like looking at an MRI um, uh, instead of just looking at somebody's, you know, someone's body, uh, you take an MRI and you can look at the full three, uh, you know, internal components. This is essentially what a radar is doing. And this is why it's been so important to have this satellite 
uh, because we can look at the 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 components, the uh, whether it's really heavy rainfall or light rainfall. We can look at the, the full structures of the storms, and this is the way that we can tell the differences of of the storms in different places around the world. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Kristen Rasmussen, an assistant professor at Colorado State University. Uh, we're talking about where the wild storms are, and apparently they are in Argentina and parts of South America. That may be a surprise, but uh, that landmark study by the Professor Ed Zipser at University of Utah, uh, I believe, I don't know if he was at Texas A&M at the time he published that particular work, uh, really has led to quite a bit of new work and research across our field. And we're talking about the Relampago project. So what was it like when you got down to Argentina and you saw one of these big storms in person for the first time? You know, uh, as a meteorologist, I always love going out and looking at the storms themselves. Um, And I've studied these storms. I'd studied them for about 10 years uh, before actually seeing one in person. And so it's hard to explain how excited I was to see uh, one of these storms in person. I was just um, over the moon um, because these storms are, are, again, some of the most intense anywhere on the planet. And they all are very different. They actually have very different characteristics. And so it was extremely exciting for me uh, personally and professionally. Well, let's 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 talk about those differences. I mean, I mean give us a baseline, a normal, uh, or at least if we consider U.S. convective storms, the sort of baseline or perhaps other parts of the world. And then how are these storms different? So the, the primary thing that I usually uh, begin talking about when talking about the unique characteristics of Argentina storms is the Andes mountain range. So the Andes is an incredibly tall mountain range. It's about double the average altitude of the Rockies. Um, it is a huge, uh, very narrow mountain range. And so uh, the presence of the Andes uh, just uh, to the west of the region where we see these intense storms is basically the primary difference that we see um, in those storms relative to what we see in the United States. Um, the Andes provide a much uh, stronger low-level jet that brings moisture down from the Amazon basin. This is really nice tropical moist air that comes into the subtropics there. Um, there's also air that moves up and over the Andes. So it basically has mechanical displacement of the, the westerly winds uh, or the jet stream in the southern hemisphere. It goes up and over and it actually uh, uh, descends in the lee uh, right behind the Andes and provides a very important um, capping inversion um, or basically a lid to prevent the low-level moisture from releasing until it finds small topographic features um, to basically help with the lifting and initiate the convective systems. And so what you just heard there are really some basics of meteorology. And it sounds like geographically speaking, this region is kind of a a best case scenario for providing uh, that lifting mechanism, having instability, having moisture in place. Uh, I mean, these are things that meteorologists, even in the middle of the country here in the United States, look for. We we look for sources of moisture uh, bringing, for example, into the Tornado Alley region of the U.S., the Great Plains. There's usually the Gulf of Mexico in a low-level jet that you heard Dr. Rasmussen mention, and there's moisture. You have 
unstable atmosphere at times. You have a lifting mechanism, whether that be a front or a dry line. And if you have that capping inversion that you heard her also mention, you can get explosive development. So it sounds like the basic ingredients are the same, but just the geography makes for a, sort of a perfect cauldron or mix to really cause these explosive storms. That's right. Yeah. And the storms are they are they have some similarities to uh, convective storms in the United States. Um, but like I said, the Andes is a much narrower, much taller mountain range. Um, one other thing that this uh, tall mountain range provides is um, a lot of times these storms are uh, tend to be synoptically forced. So large scale waves that are passing across the Andes in the southern hemisphere. Um, the difference between the the uh, the forcing in the in South America versus the United States is that the Andes actually slows down the progression of these synoptic waves over the Andes be- just because of how tall and how large the Andes are, which means that the the environment that's favorable for convection uh, as these synoptic waves are moving over the Andes is present for a much longer time. So one of the things that my group was specifically interested in is looking at very long-lived and even back-building uh, mesoscale convective systems. These are systems that are uh, growing and continually growing along the foothills of the Andes um, over almost 24 hours and longer. So that, that's, that, I wanted to ask you to sort of clarify for the listeners, but I think I know what you mean, what, what you mean by backbuilding. So backbuilding basically means that these storms are continuously regenerating on their western side. Um, so typically you have a, you know, a, a thunderstorm that then joins with other thunderstorms and grows upscale into larger um, entities. We call these mesoscale convective systems. Sometimes those systems have the characteristic of uh, having consistent regeneration of intense cells on basically on the on the west side, um, on the upwind side of these storms. And uh, when this happens, they can be particularly long lived um, and they last for a very long time. And backbuilding storms, there's been some uh, great research from Russ Schumacher's group They've they've shown to be actually uh, characteristics of floods, uh, flood producing storms. They they sit over the same area for a long period of time and have regenerating systems. And so this is something we see actually in Argentina quite a bit, um, much more often than we do in the United States. And my some of my research objectives are to look at these particularly long lived uh, mesoscale convective systems in Argentina. Now these back building storms, yeah, you you mentioned some of the work of your colleague Russ Schumacher. Uh, many of the Listeners to the podcast may be familiar with a, a term training. Uh, so this is the idea that you have storms sort of moving or perhaps regenerating over the same location, as you mentioned. And it sounds like uh, this backbuilding phenomena that you talk about is re- is somewhat related to that. I want to talk about how the low-level processes are involved in that backbuilding because, you know, in a basic meteorology class that I might teach at the University of Georgia, that you might teach at Colorado State, we talk about different types of thunderstorms. We talk about the single cell or the air mass thunderstorm. We talk about multi-cell thunderstorms and we talk about supercell thunderstorms. I want to make sure the 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 reader the sorry the listeners uh, understand um, which of these types of storms if they've had some basic meteorology we're talking about here. So it sounds to me like we're talking about multicellular type events. That's right. Yeah, for these particular types there they tend to be multicell uh, types of storms. They have many uh, different cells that are organized together. Um, but we did see Quite a few kind of single cell thunderstorms. We we did observe some supercells down in the field, um, and we saw the whole spectrum of of storms between 
the single cell and the multi-cell uh, storms in Relampago. Now, you talked about what some of your research objectives are, and we're talking with Dr. Kristen Rasmussen, of, uh, the assistant professor and assistant professor at Colorado State University, and you mentioned some of your research interests. So talk to us now about sort of what your role was and, and or your students there on the ground at, at the uh, Relampago field campaign. What, what were you primarily doing yeah, so as a PI for Relampago, um, my one of my main jobs was to basically be in the op center, um, which is where we have all the data coming in and we can visualize all the data together and make decisions for the field campaign. Um, so we were in the op- operations center, basically directing operations. We had mobile operations with um, Doppler on wheels, trucks and mesonets uh, driving all over um, Argentina. Um, we also had fixed um, assets. We had uh, large radars that we were deciding the scan strategies for, uh, how we how we scan those radars. We also had weather balloons. And so there were a lot of moving parts. And so it required at least a couple PIs to be in the op center at all times to to organize these um, these these types of of things for the field campaign. My students actually were out in the field. Uh, one of my students was out launching weather balloons, um, and another one was driving around in a mesonet vehicle. Um, and so the roles of the students and the PIs are, are quite different, but but every role is very exciting in, in these types of field campaigns. And I, I do know that the, the campaign has ended, I believe. We, we, we talked to Karen about this. Where are we in the what do we know or what do we learn phase? Are you writing and doing analysis or have you started publishing research? Yes. So the field campaign ended on the 18th of December, uh, 2018. And uh, so we are... Basically, for the past couple of months, people have been uh, QCing the data. So basically doing a quality control and making sure the data looks good. Um, and now we're basically taking that data and we're doing research right now. So we're in the middle of, of our research process. We're, we're looking at new things, um, but we hope to start getting our papers in, in order uh, later this year. I want to now ask you about something that I suspect is related because I understand you were actually working alongside or with the local weather service in Argentina. Uh, What kind of system do they have and does it, how does it compare to the national weather service that we're familiar with here in the U S and why was it important for you to engage with an operational uh, agency there on the ground in Argentina? Yeah. One of our important uh, collaborations was with the, um, the SMN or the Argentine weather service, uh, they actually provided uh, forecasters uh, to be there for the entire campaign to help us with the local knowledge. It was really important to get the local forecast knowledge and um, what they were expecting to, to happen. Um, we also uh, really wanted to make a tie to the SMN because uh, one of the goals of our project was not only to come down there and take observations, but also to understand the storms in a, in a more complex way to hopefully um, pr- uh, enable better forecasting of these systems in the future. Argentina does not have a an alert system, or at least they didn't when we wrote this proposal. Um, and so they have the same types of impacts uh, like tornadoes and hail and floods uh, that we have with our convective storms in the United States, um, although they don't have the type of warning systems that we have. And they have a lot of people in the way of those storms as they as they cross central Argentina. So we were hoping to integrate with the SMN to to, to deliver knowledge and also to have kind of a nice collaboration Um to hopefully improve prediction of these extreme events in the future. Yeah, that, that's actually a bit stunning to me that uh, there there's no sort of warning system in place. That's that's a bit of new news to me. And I was it was go- surprising. Oh, sorry. Oh no, go ahead. Now, yeah, I, I think I, a lot of times the weather geeks love 
listeners may not realize this, but we are often taping these and we're not in the same room. So at times it's kind of hard to see pauses and cues. So apologies <laughs> yeah. to the listeners there. I, I actually did see a comment out there on iTunes about that uh, interruptions at time, but it's just the nature of how we do these. So we just bear with us on that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And I think the lack of a, a ground-based radar network has limited the ability to, to put these real-time systems out. Um, luckily, Argentina did install a, a ground-based radar network um, about two years ago. And so they've started some uh, kind of some warnings, mostly through smartphone um, alerts, actually. And I think they've had some success with that. And so we'd like to just improve that as they as they continue the process. What, what are the people there in Argentina how do they perceive these storms, the people that live in these areas? Are, are they savvy to sort of what to expect, like people in the Great Plains might be to tornadic storms there in the U.S.? Do they know, oh, when we see that kind of MCS type activity, they know that they may see certain flooding or hail or whatnot. Now, what, what was your take on that being there with people in the area? Yeah, I would say that they generally have a pretty good sense of when something's coming, Um I, we did a bunch of outreach events with local uh, K through 12 students. And one thing that was remarkable to me is we asked these, these students, you know, how, what's the largest hail you've seen or how big of hail do you see in this area? And they all held their hands up and, and showed us giant hailstorms, uh, hailstones, excuse me, baseball size and larger. Um, and to them, the hail there, you know, we, we, from research that, that has been done using other satellites, it looks like the hail there is some of the largest and most frequent in the world, actually. And these students just showed us these huge hailstones. Uh, and this is just what they are used to. This is just normal for them. And so I think that they're just uh, they're just used to these severe storms happening a lot. And they have adjusted and found ways to, you know, to, to know that they're coming. Uh, but there's, of course, more we can do, particularly for tornadoes that have, uh, you know, a much uh, shorter and much more devastating impact on locals in a short time period. And that's interesting that the local folks talk about those large hailstones, and particularly the kids, because as, as, as many of you may know, the size of a hailstone can be indicative of the strength of the vertical winds or the updrafts in these storms. So uh, the larger those hailstones are, that there are some pretty significant vertical motions or updrafts, which also means there's probably some pretty significant instability or what we in meteorology call CAPE, convective available potential energy, that's sort of driving these storms. But one of the interesting things, that, and maybe this is related to the mountains, I want to get your perspective on this, because I know that uh, hail can often be not only a function of the strength of the updrafts and the the convective nature of the storm itself, but also the freezing levels, uh, how, where where the freezing level is in, in altitude. Uh, and I, I know that there are particularly hail-prone climatologies here in the U.S., sort of in the uh, sort of foothills foothill, or out into the mountains of the Rockies. So uh, is that sort of a similar phenomena going on there with the Andes in terms of the freezing levels? Yeah, it is pretty similar. Um, actually, we were in a place called Cordoba, and also there was a place called Mendoza that we also had some observations and uh, Mendoza in particular feels a lot like Boulder, Colorado. Um, it's pretty, pretty dry. Um, and uh, the freezing levels we, we found were pretty similar. Uh, so we do think that's a similarity, although we do notice that there are much larger hailstones closer to the mountains than we see in the Rockies. So that's something that we that, that's something we identified actually even before we went down there. Mendoza, Argentina is a very large wine production region in Argentina. Uh, they produce a lot of Malbec wines there. And the um, 
the wineries actually have to cover their uh, their vines with nets because they get such large and frequent hail in the region that if they didn't do that, then basically they would have 100% loss um, each year. So well, we there's something, <laughs> yeah, there's something very special about the uh, the hail production and the intensity of the storms right up against the mountains uh, that we don't see here. I live here in Fort Collins, and we see you know intense storms here, but we don't see a high concentration of very deep and very intense convective storms right along the foothills. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Kristen Rasmussen about where the wild storms are, big thunderstorms and big mesoscale convective systems down in South America that she's been studying. Uh, I want to pivot now and get your thoughts uh, or an explanation of uh, something that you're involved with. You serve as director of the Advanced Study Institute Field Studies of Convection in Argentina, which is a part of an NSF or National Science Foundation sponsored international research experience for students. Uh, I think you've kind of alluded to this already, but it sounds like this is another opportunity for you to take students into the field and engage. That's right. We brought 16 uh, graduate students from the United States uh, down to the field uh, to participate in the Relampago field campaign. Uh, it was a three-week program, and they were integrated directly with the instruments um, and the teams that were going out to take observations for Relampago. Uh, we also provided professional development for these students. We gave them science lectures. We had a couple um uh, people actually come down to Argentina specifically to give these lectures, including Chris Davis and Howie Bluestein. Um, and these students had a fantastic time and learned in basically firsthand what it's like to participate in a field campaign. And that, that's so awesome because uh, I think oftentimes students are really intrigued and inspired and awed by the weather, but it's important for them to engage also in the full sort of science or scientific method side of the research. I think many students and many people are engaged by the forecasting and prediction and storm chasing and all of those things. But basic research is so important to what we do and the reasons we are able to make advances in weather prediction models, new instrumentation and observations and so forth. So I commend you and your colleagues for, for engaging those students. I want Thanks. to shift, yep. I want to shift gears now and talk about some other research that you recently published. Uh, you were recently the lead author on a 2017 paper in a journal called Climate Dynamics. And this paper gets into an area that can be a little dicey and tricky and hard to explain to the lay public and to the media. And this is the idea of climate change and severe storms. Now, we know climate change is a thing. Uh, you know, I think the, the peer review literature is pretty clear on that. But the challenge is understanding how contemporary extreme weather events are linked to climate change. And I think for some things like heat and extreme rainfall, perhaps even lack of cold events and drought, there are pretty clear signals. 
there's been a bit less conclusiveness on the linkage between climate change and severe storms, hail, tornadoes. Talk to us a little bit about the big picture umbrella that I just set up there and then about the motivation behind your study. Sure. So framed by my work in South America and looking at extreme storms around the world, uh, I was very interested in looking at new, very high resolution regional climate model uh, simulations that allow for clouds to be resolved in a much better way than most uh, climate models can can resolve. Um, the big picture was that I really wanted to understand the changes in the spectrum of convective systems from weak systems all the way through very intense systems in a warmer and moister climate. Uh, the way that I framed this study was actually looking at the thermodynamic uh, changes in a current and a future climate, because like I mentioned in South America, it's the, you know, the instability that's brought down by the low-level jet that, that really gives the fuel to these storms. And it's the capping inversion that provides the energy to basically put a lid. Um, essentially, if you think of a soda bottle, you put a lid on a soda bottle and you shake it up, the instability builds and builds, and then you take the cap off and the instability can be released. Um, and so I wanted to look at those particular uh, uh, severe storm metrics, but in a future climate, because this will give us the big picture of how convection may respond to changing thermodynamic conditions. And so what we found was that the available energy for convection or CAPE, convective available potential energy, increases in a future climate uh, due to increased temperature and moisture. However, we also found that there's increased energy suppressing those storms from forming. So more uh, convective inhibition. And that's basically that lid or that capping inversion that, that is helping to build the instability to extreme levels. And so what this meant was that in the convective population, we found fewer weak to moderate storms and we found more intense uh, uh, severe storms in the future climate. And we think that though that distribution is explained by the change in thermodynamic conditions. And that's an interesting finding and, and somewhat, and, and as I, I think back to the sort of tropical literature on hurricane linkages to climate change, consistent in some ways, but a completely different pro problem in physics. But this notion that you'll perhaps not see as many storms, but when they do, they're stronger and more intense. Is that, is that, am I interpreting what you said correctly? Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's sort of what, what, what some of the literature has been suggesting when it comes to hurricanes as well. It sounds to me, and because I know that Colorado State has been a leader in something called super parameterization. One of my colleagues, Gabe Cooperman at Georgia, is involved in some of this research as well, where you're trying to explicitly resolve convective or cloud systems at on on basically a global climate model sort of grid as opposed to having to fudge it or parameterize those processes. So are you involved in some of the super parameterization work there? So I'm not uh, specifically involved in the super parameterization work uh, out of Dave Randall's group and the CMAP program. Uh, the work that I have just talked about, I was actually a postdoc at NCAR ah. um, down in Boulder, Colorado when I did this work. And uh, it was the scientists at NCAR who they actually ran uh, the WARF model. This is a very common uh, mesoscale model that we use for understanding the weather. Um, they ran it in regional climate mode. So we ran it for 13 years in a current climate and 13 years in a future climate at four kilometer horizontal resolution. So this allows us to actually turn off the convective parameterization, which like you mentioned, uh, Marshall, uh, basically gives an approximation of the convection but for people like me who study clouds and cloud dynamics, uh, those parameterizations um, have a lot of problems. 
So when we can turn those off and explicitly represent the processes, we're actually allowing the convective systems to be, um, uh, basically to respond to the changes in thermodynamic conditions that are provided. And so this, to me, is a much more robust way of seeing what a warmer climate would do to the, the actual cloud dynamics and how these clouds form in their natural environment. Yeah, and, and and so this is this is very important work because as I mentioned, I I, I co-authored a, with a group of scientists a, a report for the National Academies in 2016 on something called attribution, which is attributing contemporary weather extremes to climate change, and there just were so limited in the number of studies that we had the sample for that report on linkages between climate change and severe weather environments, and so I think this work is so important. But again, I want to emphasize that even in, in, in Dr. Rasmussen's work, she's talking about the environments conducive to tornadic or hailstorms. Uh, I, I still haven't seen very much work out there sort of or that linking number of tornado, tornadoes, for example, to climate change. And so I'm just saying that as a caveat for people to be careful whenever you start seeing uh, these outbreaks of tornadoes and you start seeing rumors and innuendo flying around about, uh, oh, that tornado was probably caused because of climate change. But there's certainly something too, and I've seen this with other uh, papers as well, to this notion that the environments conducive to severe weather may produce more intense, a, an intense generation of, of, of convective storms. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Yes. I want, I, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to uh, kind of, I don't know if this is what you're planning to do, but uh, it was interesting actually to see that these more robust and, and basically stronger thermodynamic environments led to a population of fewer weak and moderate storms and more in, intense storms. Um, this is kind of what we see in Argentina, actually. Um, Argentina has a stronger convective available potential energy and also stronger um, inhibition. And we see that we get more intense deep convective storms and we don't see as many of the kind of the weak and moderate storms. So it's kind of interesting for me to connect, you know, the the Argentina work that I do with some of these kind of climate perspectives because the thermodynamic environments really do control the type of convection and the, and the intensity of the convection that you can get. And I think that's why we're so keyed in on focusing on the thermodynamics. And this is this is so awesome. This is this is again. I like to say this from time to time, but this is exactly what the Weather Geeks podcast is built to do. We're we're geeking out here on thermodynamics, thunderstorms in Argentina, uh, and on, on all kind of interesting things that, if you're listening to this podcast, I know intrigue you as well. I want to bring up a recent uh, project that was funded uh, as of February 2019, uh, where you're going to be looking at the prediction of rainfall extremes in the Pacific in 2020. Yes, uh, we're very excited. We're, this is a new field campaign called Precip, uh, and we are looking at extreme rainfall production. Um, and we're going to Taiwan. We're bringing uh, the NCAR S-Polka radar and a CSU SeaPole uh, radar um, out to the region to look at basically how the different ingredients that combine uh, to produce very, very heavy rainfall. Um, and it's a very hard thing to predict, and it's a global challenge, and we're, we're hoping to make progress on that topic. Can you connect the dot for the listener that may not understand why you're going to some remote region of the uh, Pacific Ocean to study extreme rainfall? Can you connect the dot to the so what for someone living in Fort Collins or in Athens, Georgia? Absolutely. So many of the flooding events and the heavy rainfall events that have happened you know, in Colorado and a lot of the United States, um, research has gone on after those events and has shown that one of the prime ingredients that was required for that event to happen was moisture. 
Uh, we don't have a lot of abundant tropical moisture here in Colorado. And yet when we had our uh, big flood in 2013, uh, it was basically tropical moisture that was brought into the region over an extended period of time that was attributed to the primary cause of the event. Uh, we also know that there are many other ingredients um, that are important for producing extremely heavy rainfall. And so our idea is to go to Taiwan. Taiwan is a place where there is always abundant moisture. I don't know if anybody's been to that part of the world in the summer. It's extremely humid. There's, there's a lot of moisture in the region. So we want to go to a place that is not moisture limited. And we want to look at all of the other subsequent ingredients, um, including dynamics, thermodynamics, and microphysics that are producing heavy rainfall. And the idea is then to take those other ingredients and then to scope them out globally to see you know, which ingredients are important in, in different places around the world. Well, we'll be, we'll be keeping our eyes on that because rainfall is certainly an area of, of, of my own personal research interest as well. So I look forward to seeing what you learn in that campaign. Uh, Dr. Rasmussen, can people follow you on social media anywhere? Are you on Twitter or Instagram or have a public Facebook page? I, I do have a Facebook page and a Twitter account. Um, I will admit that I'm a newbie uh, to those types of things. Um, I can learn a lot from you, Marshall, <laughs> Marshall from uh, your social media presence. Uh, but yeah, I will be starting something uh, pretty soon to talk about my research on, on Twitter. A absolutely, because I think people really would like to know more about your work in Relampago and as well as this new project. So uh, keep an eye out for uh, Dr. Rasmussen out there on social media because she's doing some really interesting work. And I, I've been uh, familiar with her for some time and and, and know that she's a, just a, an outstanding young scholar within our field. Uh, Kristen, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Yes. And uh, please continue to listen. We, we have a good time. We geek out on the weather, climate, science, and whatever else comes to mind. And make sure you're passing along the word. And if you haven't subscribed on your favorite podcast outlet, uh, feel free to do so. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. Thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.